Well, I want to welcome you back to another Sunday afternoon edition of Then and Now with Ed Stevens, where we are taking a look at our past so that we can better understand where we are going in our future. Stay with us. It's a beautiful afternoon here in Southern California, my friend Ed Stevens. Tell us what the weather like is like over there in Pennsylvania. Well, it's warm and humid and, you know, somewhat uh, overcast, but uh, it's nice out there. I was out a little while ago and uh, enjoyed it. Nice. Well, it's, uh, it is a little bit more humid here than it is normally. It is kind of warm, but it's a beautiful Southern California mid-summer day. I, I cannot complain. Four years, four years, four days until my 40th birthday. I'm almost halfway there, Ed. Wow, man, you're you're almost in the big four zero. That's amazing. Ooh, scare me. <laughs> you're an old man now. Yeah, hey, 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 hey! Don't don't quite count me out just yet, Ed. <laughs> uh, so I remember when uh, I crossed into uh, forty, and uh, my kids asked me, uh, "How old are you?" and and they said, and I said forty, and they said, "Wow, that's old." And I said, "Well, how old do you think old is?" And they said, "Well, you know, somewhere after 30. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all relative, I guess. Well, yeah, and the thing is, my mind is still the exact same mind that I had fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years ago. Uh, you know, I've I've learned a few more mistakes along the way and how not to make those same mistakes again. But my body just doesn't quite recover like it used to. Yeah, well, the best is yet to come on that. Oh no, 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 no. Let's let's pretend that's not going to happen. But uh, so, what direction are we going today, uh, my friend? Well, we're going to pick up back where we left off a couple of weeks ago on uh, when Paul was in his house arrest in Rome mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of years, AD sixty-one to sixty-three, right there at the book, end of the book of Acts, uh, chapter twenty-eight. I'm going to pick up with some of the other events that were occurring about that same time. Alrighty, my friend. Well, I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to you and let you do what you do best. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> uh, for those of you who are listening live, uh, the lesson outline is obviously not yet available uh, for you to download. But if you're listening to this later uh, on demand, uh, you'll want to download the PDF first and open it in your Adobe Reader program so that you can have it in front of you as you listen here to the podcast. And so if you haven't done that yet, you want to do so right now and get that open on the screen or print it out for you so that you can uh, read along with us as we talk about all this. Also, uh, any sources of information that we may mention here on the podcast are already listed in the outline so that you shouldn't have to write them down. Uh, Just look at the uh, information there in the outline. You can order them based on the information in the PDF. Also, I want to mention Frank Spears' new podcast. Uh, I asked him to send me a little blurb uh, talking about his new podcast, and he sent me this. I'm just going to read it. Hey, gang, if you're looking for enthusiastic, sound, biblical teaching with a dose of life application – then be sure to check out Frank Spears' daily 30-minute podcast entitled Big Frank's Super Terrific Bible Hour. You can find it at www.lightshine.me. Currently, Frank is taking us on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew. This series is great for teenagers also. And uh, he says, since Frank has a way of communicating in a very conversational, engaging, and sometimes even comical style. In fact, you know, I can say that uh, uh, not because he says it, but because of my own personal experience with Frank. I've been to his house, spent three days with him, and uh, I got to know him pretty well. And he is just a funny guy. He's he's really hilarious and right. interesting to listen to. So. Uh, If you're interested in some good, solid, practical, biblical teaching on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and your teenager especially, I think you'll really enjoy it, uh, or college age, uh, tune in to his terrific Bible hour at 
www.lightshine.me. Now, Ed, also just to let the listening audience know, we also broadcast that same series as well on Preterist Radio at 8.30 a.m. Pacific and uh, midnight Eastern. So uh, 8, 8.30 Pacific in the morning and then 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific is where we're also airing that here on the station. It, it's a really great show. It's fun. Uh, you know, he's breaking it down to a, a level where just about everybody from uh, youth all the way up to retirement can understand. Well, I can understand it, so it's got to be pretty simple for me. So. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> all right. Last time we looked at the uh, dates of writing for the Gospel of John, and we discussed the fact that I felt like it was probably written in the eighty sixty one to 62 area just before he was arrested by Ananus II in Passover of 62 AD, uh, just like James was. And uh, it happened, of course, while Paul was still in prison during this 61 to 63 time frame that we're looking at here. We also mentioned the incident where the Jews raised the height of the western wall of the temple to block Agrippa's view of the activities in the temple because Agrippa had built him a nice, himself a nice deck out on the back of his palace overlooking uh, the, the lower section of Jerusalem. And he was able from that deck to kind of uh, do espionage on temple activities. And the temple Jews didn't like that too much. So they built the wall of the, of the temple on the western side a little higher to block his view so he couldn't spy on them and couldn't uh, uh, see what they were up to. And so uh, Agrippa told him to take that wall down, and they appealed to Caesar, of course, and because they were, they were good friends with Papaya, Nero's Jewish wife, uh, they were able to use her influence to get Nero to keep the... Uh, the wall there in place and not be torn down again. We also talked about the time of writing of the epistle of James and how that it was probably written about the time Apostle Paul was uh, arriving in Rome or shortly after uh, on his uh, imprisonment there and before he was arrested and killed by Ananus II at Passover in AD 62. Then we also talked about uh, the three short epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I did a little more study of those three epistles uh, this last week in preparation for the lesson. And I was looking for more information inside the book, uh, which would help us narrow down the date of writing. And I'll share some of that with you uh, this time as we talk about it. I want to pick back up there where we left off. Um, Also, uh, we need to keep in mind the time frame here. Uh, It's during Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome, which began in the early spring of AD 61, after they had wintered on the island of Malta, where they'd been shipwrecked in late AD 60, in the fall of AD 60. And that, and then he uh, finally made it to Rome in the in the spring of '61, and uh, that imprisonment then lasted two full years, according to Luke, in Acts chapter eight, twenty-eight, verse thirty. So let's pick back up where we left off with John's three short epistles in the end of our Bible here, first, second, and third John. Since I think that John was arrested at the same time as James in April of 62, it means that John most likely wrote his three short epistles about the same time James wrote his epistle, uh, which would be late 61 or very early 62, uh, probably over the wintertime. That's when most uh, of the apostles didn't do much traveling and evangelistic work over the winter. Uh, And Apostle Paul was especially that way. And that's when he wrote a lot of his epistles was during the wintertime when they had to stay indoors. And so it's my guess that 
1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the epistle of James were written in the winter of 61 to 62 AD, uh, just before they were arrested in the spring of 62. Not one of these three epistles of John mention his arrest or exile on the island of Patmos, nor do they contain any subtle reflections of his writing under exile conditions, nor of his residence in Ephesus later. Because of his exile under Ananus II, who was still alive until AD 68, uh, we know from Josephus, uh, John would not have been allowed to return to Palestine, even if he had been freed from his exile on Patmos. He could not have gone back to to uh, to uh, Palestine because uh, the high priest who exiled him was still alive and still there in Palestine. So he would have had to have gone to nearby Ephesus and lived there if he was released from uh, exile on Patmos. And that's, I believe, what happened, actually. And we'll get into that uh, here in a, in a couple of years, uh, not in our time here on the broadcast, but in a couple of years on our uh, historical survey here in 63 AD. We'll uh, talk about what Paul said to Titus in that regard. Okay, so uh, here's are some subtle hints in Paul's epistle to Titus. I believe that Zenos the lawyer and Apollos the orator may have traveled to Patmos after they had helped Paul get released from his imprisonment in Rome in 63. Uh, then Paul mentions that they were on their way somewhere else for some reason and that Titus was to send them on their way uh, fully uh, uh, supported so that they could get their work done, whatever that was. And Paul doesn't mention what that work is, but knowing that it's a, a lawyer and an orator and that they had helped Paul probably in his release from Roman imprisonment, uh, it'd be easy to guess what they were on their way to do. Uh, and traveling through Crete, on their way to somewhere else, uh, the next stop by boat would have been the coast of Turkey. And that's where John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. So uh, you, you put two and two together here, and you can historically reconstruct what most likely was going on at this time. Uh, and, and that is that Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos, the orator, probably went to Patmos to secure John's release and then he went to Ephesus to remain uh, there because he couldn't return to Palestine until the high priest died, uh, which did not occur until 68 AD. Okay, both of John's second and third letters state that John's intention was to soon visit the churches to whom he was writing. This sounds like he was in Jerusalem before his exile to Patmos, planning to travel to churches outside Palestine. I mean, it's, it doesn't say that explicitly, but the implication is there. If you study Second John and Third John, uh, you'll notice Second uh, John verse uh, 12 here. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. And that chosen sister, of course, is a reference to a church, a fellow church. And uh, in the first verse of Second John, it says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Not only I, but all who know the truth for the sake of the truth, and so on. So it's hard to tell who he's writing to, but it's definitely another church. And uh, and he's writing from one church to another. And there probably wasn't a church on the island of Patmos. So 
it'd be very hard to believe he was on the island of Patmos writing from a church there uh, when he wrote this. Also in 3 John, says almost something similar in, in verse 13. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and will speak face to face. Uh, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. And this, of course, was written to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And uh, there was an, a Gaius in Macedonia, uh, there was also a Gaius of Derby, and there was a Gaius at Corinth. So it's hard to tell which of the three Gaiuses is under consideration here. Uh, but it's definitely outside of Palestine, and he's writing to that guy from evidently from inside Palestine. And so those are helpful, I believe, in helping us understand when these books were written by John. I also want to look at 1 John uh, chapter 2. And I think that'll help us uh, nail down the date for 1 John. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 18. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. Now, uh, what world was passing away for the Jewish people at that point, the Jewish Christians? Uh, obviously, the Jewish world. Uh, it was in its final days. It, its last days was already there, had been even by the time of Pentecost, 40 years before. And so that world was in its last death throes, uh, was passing away. And then he says, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From, from this we know it is the last hour. Now, we don't see this kind of intensity of time statements in any of the earlier epistles that were written. In fact, in the gospel accounts, which were written uh, five to ten years earlier than First and Second and Third John, we see general time statements where when you see these things happening, you'll know it's getting near. Uh, or when you, when you see these signs, uh, it's like the, uh, the olive tree or like the fig tree or whatever, uh, you see the leaves coming out, you know that summer is near. That's the idea, is general time statements that it was drawing near. But here John says, it is the last hour. The world is in the process of passing away. And so uh, that tells us that we're in those last few years uh, before the outbreak of the Jewish revolt in 66 AD, when things were beginning to heat up in Palestine as they were in 64 during the Neronic persecution, as well as uh, afterwards when the zealots began beating the drums of war uh, to go and revolt against Jerusalem in 65 AD. Uh, they were already uh, beating the war drums, trying to stir up interest in a revolt. Uh, and they had to turn their attention away from persecuting Christians at that point uh, to start building up their defenses to uh, ward off the uh, Roman Empire when they came to attack. So uh, these time statements that we see here in 1 John indicate that it was really written right up there close to the outbreak of the revolt, uh, no later than, than uh, 66, of course, and... Uh, no earlier, I believe, than 61 A.D., uh, about the time Paul uh, was headed into prison there in Rome, is about the time First John and maybe Second and Third John were uh, were written in that 61 to 62 time frame, just before he was arrested 
and sent to the island of Patmos. If uh, these books had been written while he was on exile in Patmos, there would most likely be some reference to the seven churches in Turkey and to his state of imprisonment. And we noticed in 1 John 2.18 that it mentions it is the last hour. Uh, The world is passing away. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Because of this strong imminency language here in 1 John, uh, it seems quite likely that these three epistles were written just as the Great Tribulation was beginning to heat up. And that would have been in 62-61 AD uh, when Paul was now in prison and James was just about to be arrested and killed and John was sent to exile. So this time frame, 61-62, is, I believe, uh, the time that these first three epistles of John were probably written. Before it got so bad that uh, they could no longer travel safely or send letters. Uh, After 64 AD, when the Neronic persecution broke out, it would have not been possible to even write letters and have them sent to fellow Christians around the empire. And it it increasingly became dangerous to do so as we go throughout that period from 62 to 64. And by 64, it was no longer possible for them to write letters and get them circulated safely. Uh, They had to write in code language like the book of Revelation. And they had to uh, send it by general couriers. And uh, it it was a really tricky situation after the Neuronic persecution broke out. Okay, the other New Testament epistles, which use the same kind of intense eminency language that we see here in 1 John chapter 2 were all written in this same time frame of 61 to 64 AD. And so uh, we're going to talk an awful lot more about that uh, in the future, especially when we get into the book of Revelation and we get into 1 and 2 Peter and uh, the epistle of James. Uh, We'll see uh, more about this eminency language that's used in these last epistles that were written in that tight time frame just before the demonic persecution broke out when the persecution was beginning to heat up. Okay, I want to talk about another event, uh, a Jewish event back in Palestine that it was occurring about this time. Uh, Josephus tells us that the Roman authorities in Judea stopped allowing the Jews to mint their own coins for the temple uh, sacrifices. Uh, as, as we know from Josephus and other sources, the Jews could only buy sacrifices with, with uh, silver coins and gold coins that had the image or had no images of Caesar on it. It, it had to be a totally imageless uh, coinage uh, to buy sacrifices with. And so Uh, The money changers had a very lucrative business inside the temple. Remember, Jesus took a a whip and drove out the money changers out of the temple. Well, these money changers were those guys who exchanged your Roman coins with images of the Caesar on it for temple-compliant coinage, which had no Caesar's images on them. And, of course, uh, the exchange rate was probably 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 or 4 to 1. You'd have to have four of Caesar's coins or two or three of Caesar's coins to, uh, to buy one temple-compliant coinage. Uh, so you can see the uh, tremendous financial uh, booming business that these money changers uh, had. Uh, when they were exchanging these coins like this. And the Romans got tired of that, uh, and they put a stop to it in 62 AD, about the same time that uh, we're looking at here with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John being written, and the book of James also uh, being written about this time. Uh, It was when the Roman authorities 
stopped allowing the Jews to mint their own temple-compliant coins. Uh, and, of course, they had the intent not only of stopping the abuse, because the Jews are just getting rich off of that exchange, uh, but they also had the intent of eventually forcing the Jews to bring Roman coinage into the temple, which had the images of Nero on it and the images of other Romans imprinted upon them. Uh, they wanted to bring the Jews into Roman and Greek culture a little bit more. They wanted to Hellenize the Jews, and they figured that they could do that if they stopped allowing the Jews to mint their own coins, eventually they would run out of coins because every year when they exchanged those coins, not all of those coins ended up in the, the temple treasury. Some of them were kept and taken back home with folks. And uh, and so the, the supply of temple-compliant coins began to dwindle at that point when they stopped allowing them to make more of them. Uh, they started dwindling, and the Romans hoped that that would eventually uh, whittle them down to the point where they could no longer use those coins because uh, they didn't have enough of them, and therefore they'd have to bring in Roman coins that has the images on them. Well, this would have violated the second commandment, uh, which is to not have any images, make no images of any gods besides God. Don't even make an image of God himself. Uh, the Jews were not allowed to mint their own coins that were temple compliant now. So this meant that the supply of coinage that they had in the temple would be all that they could keep in the temple treasury. And uh, this means that they could not grow the temple treasury at all. It would be ever decreasing, ever diminishing. And they would not be able to keep any uh, gold there in the temple treasury. Unfortunately, this supply of coinage had a tendency to dwindle down as a result of the money changers. So just four years after this, in AD 66, the Roman procurator, Florus, tried to seize all the rest of the gold that was left in the temple so that the Jews would no longer have any more Torah-compliant gold coinage and would therefore be forced to accept Roman coinage with human images on it. It was this very attempt by Gessius Florus which provoked the Jews to revolt, and we'll look at that in AD 66 uh, when we get there, uh, just four more years down the road from us on our historical outline, uh, several weeks away yet probably in our study. But that's going to be a very interesting thing, and I want to set the stage for that by mentioning the, the fact here that in 62 A.D., uh, the Romans put a stop to their minting new coinage for the temple practice. Okay, another event that occurred about the same time that we're looking at here in A.D. 62 was an earthquake in Campania, which is a part of, of Rome. And it did a lot of damage to Pompeii also, uh, which I believe is in Greece there. Uh, severe damage in Armenia and Palestine also from this earthquake. Uh, so this is in 62 AD. I don't know exactly when it was in 62. I'd, I'd like to know if it was right around the same time that James and his companions were arrested in April of 62. It'd be interesting to find out when this earthquake occurred and see if there might be a connection. Uh, but it's interesting that a massive earthquake, uh, which did a lot of damage, occurred in 62 AD. And it seems like the earthquakes are increasing in frequency about this time, uh, which is what Jesus had predicted in Matthew chapter 24 and its parallels. Also about this time in, in uh, AD 62, Ananias ben Nadibus, who was no longer high priest, but still very powerful, and as all other high priests who were former high priests, 
as long as they were alive, they were still considered to be uh, high priests. It's like presidents here in in the U.S. Once a president, you're always a president uh, in terms of your reference to you. Whenever you re- refer to uh, Bill Clinton or or Jimmy Carter, uh, you refer to them as president, even though they're not the sitting president at the time. And that's the way it was with the uh, the high priest, because Ananias ben Nadibus was a former high priest. He was still addressed as high priest uh, when they referred to him and talked to him. Uh, he was very powerful at this time in 62 AD, still very powerful. In spite of the fact that he was no longer high priest, he was still extremely wealthy and influential in the politics of Jerusalem. Vanderkam, in his excellent book from Joshua to Caiaphas, explains in pages uh, 458 to 459, he says this, Ananias figures several times in later stories about the period after his high priesthood. Josephus notes that he exercised great influence during the reign of Albinus, which is A.D. 62 to 64. It's the very period of time which we're looking at here. Uh, He won the favor of the populace, so we learn, because of his wealth. He paid bribes to Albinus and the high priest, the sitting high priest at that time. Uh, We learn this in Antiquities, uh, Book 20, Sections 205 through 208. And these references are in the PDF outline, so you don't need to write them down. Uh, uh, You'll have those right there for you. Uh, One of Ananias' sons, Eliezer ben Ananias, who was the secretary of the Sagan of the Temple Guard, evidently was kidnapped by the Sakari and held for ransom. Later on, uh, after he was ransomed and got back, he becomes the Sagan of the temple and was the Sagan at the time of the outbreak of the revolt in 66 AD. So some very interesting events are occurring right here in 62 leading up to the outbreak of the revolt. Uh, very interesting. That's why I'm mentioning it so, so that we can set the stage for what's going to be happening shortly in our historical narrative. Ananias was so wealthy and powerful that he was able to single-handedly influence Albinus, the Roman procurator, to release 10 Sicari prisoners in exchange for his son, who had been taken hostage by the Sicari. Well, since this worked so well, and the Sicari got freedom as well as a huge financial benefit from Ananias, they pulled this stunt several more times, kidnapping various members of Ananias' family and staff, knowing that they would be able to get more bribes out of him and get more of their Sicari buddies released from prison. So the Sicari preyed upon whichever government official had the most money and influence, kidnapping their friends and relatives especially if he was a moderate who was compromising with Rome, like Ananias was. At this time, uh, in the four years leading up to the revolt in 62 to 66 AD, it appears that Ananias was that very kind of ruler, uh, according to Josephus in Antiquities uh, Book 20. Two of Ananias' sons, Ananus and Eleazar, served as Sagan of the Temple Guard. That, that's the captain of the Temple Guard, and you'll see that title referred to in the book of Acts, uh, and I think in the Gospels as well. Uh, it mentions the captain of the Temple's Guard, and that was basically the police force of the Temple. Two of Ananias' sons served in that capacity as like the general over the Temple forces, Another son of his, Simon, was the leading spokesman for a delegation that appealed to Gessius Florus for help against the Zealot rebels in AD 66, uh, before the revolt. Thus we see significant evidence that Ananias and his family were right up there at the top of the most wealthy and powerful of the ruling class in Judea just before the war began. Uh, 
it's uh, quite possible, according to An- to Josephus, uh, that Ananias was more wealthy and more powerful in his influence than even the sitting high priest was. Uh, in fact, Josephus seems to indicate that 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 is the case. He was far more wealthy and powerful than the sitting high priest and wielded enough power that he was able to set his own son as the uh, Sagan of the temple. And that's unusual because normally the high priest himself, whoever is a sitting high priest, would have the right to install whatever temple guard he wanted, uh, captain of the temple guard. So the fact that Ananias had his own son in there as as the uh, captain of the temple guard, the Sagan, uh, indicates that Ananias must have had huge amount of influence and power and prestige and wealth backing him up. Ananias had a lot vest, of vested interest in keeping the peace with Rome. He was a moderate and therefore a target of the zealots who wanted no compromise with the Romans. It is not surprising then that he was one of the first government officials killed by the zealots right after the war began in 66 AD. Remember when uh, Paul was on trial before Ananias, Ben-Adiba, uh, Ananias ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth, and Paul said to him, the Lord is about to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Well, that occurred. Uh, Ananias may have been one of the first uh, casualties, at least in the ruling class, probably was the first casualty in the ruling class after the outbreak of the war. He was the first one to be struck by the Lord at his judgment coming. Okay, so the zealot leader, Menachem, is the one who killed him. Uh, after Soon after bringing his forces into Jerusalem from Masada, bringing with him all the armaments that he captured at Masada, from the Roman uh, garrison that was there. He brought those armaments with him to Jerusalem to arm his uh, zealot forces. And right after he came into Jerusalem, he uh, launched an attack on the moderates. And the first one they clobbered was Ananias. Now, it's interesting that they didn't go after the sitting high priest at that time, who was Matthias, nor did they go after some of the other former high priests, such as Jesus, uh, son of Damnius, and um, Ananus II. Both of those guys remained alive until 68, almost two years into the war. Uh, But they did target Ananias Ben-Nadibus first, and that tells you that he was a moderate, much hated by the zealots, and was the first target uh, that they took out. So it's it's, uh, not without significance, I believe, that Eleazar, his son, was Sagan of the temple at that very time when the revolt broke out. And we're going to have a lot more to say about Eleazar in the future uh, as we get close to the, the outbreak of the revolt. But I wanted to set the stage for that a little bit here uh, so that we're begin, begin to come become familiar with these uh, characters that uh, will show up in 66 AD. Uh, Ananias, son of, of Nadibus, who had three sons, Ananus. Eleazar and Simon, uh, two of which served as the Sagan of the temple. And Eleazar, of course, uh, was the one who was Sagan of the temple at the time that the revolt broke out. All right, so keep those facts in mind uh, as we begin to move closer and closer to 66 AD. Now, another event that's occurring about this time in 62 AD Uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome, is uh, the death of Festus, uh, who was the Roman procurator and governor of Judea. Uh, We noted that at the uh, end of Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea in 60 AD, 
Festus was just beginning his uh, rule of Palestine. He replaced Felix. So he had a very short procuratorship here in Palestine, two years basically, uh, 60 to 62. He died in 62 early. The new governor, Albinus, would not arrive on the scene there in Palestine for another three months. So it would take three months for Albinus to get from Rome where he received his procuratorship uh, into Palestine. So during that three-month interim, Ananus II, who was the newly appointed high priest, appointed by Agrippa II, took advantage of this opportunity since there was no procurator in Palestine at the time, he took it upon himself to arrest James and some of his companions. Now, that's an interesting phrase in Josephus here, Antiquities, uh, Book 20, um, uh, 198 through 203, where it talks about this arrest of James and his companions. And there's been a lot of speculation about what uh, these words mean some of his companions. Uh, it can mean some of his relatives, or it can mean just some of his associates, uh, some of his friends, uh, or both. And I believe it could very well be both. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we looked at, I believe, last time or the time before, uh, the grandsons of Jude, which which I believe were arrested about this time uh, and may have been arrested at the same time James was, since it says that James and some of his companions, if it includes some of his relatives, the grandsons of Jude were his grandnephews, James's grandnephews and Jesus's grandnephews, because Jude was a brother of Jesus as well as James. And so... Uh, if these companions of James included some of his relatives, the grandsons of Jude, then this would explain when those sons or grandsons of Jude appeared before Nero's tribunal and uh, were questioned about their uh, Davidic uh, relationships. Okay, and also I believe it's the time when John, the Apostle John, who was certainly one of James's companions there in Jerusalem, uh, was arrested. And it's interesting that Peter was not arrested, even though he may have been in Jerusalem at that same time. Although I think the fact that he was not arrested indicates that he was outside of Jerusalem at the time, probably on a missionary journey. Uh, we know that Peter traveled outside Palestine quite often. We, we see him in Antioch. We see him in, in uh, some of the other cities uh, mentioned in Josephus or in Eusebius and the book of Acts. And so it's quite possible that Peter was out of town at the time James and some of his other companions were arrested in Passover of AD 62. And uh, we need to mention the fact uh, that this Ananus II, who was high priest, was the son of the very Ananus who was high priest at the time Jesus was arrested, 32 years before. And so, like father, like son, uh, the Ananus family definitely had it in for the Jesus folks. Uh, not only did they arrest Jesus and put him to death, they arrested Jesus' brother, James, and put him to death as well. And so this Annas II that arrested and killed James is the son of the Annas who killed Jesus. Okay. His son-in-law... Uh, not not Annas II, but Annas I, uh, of course. Uh, Caiaphas was high priest at the time of Jesus' arrest, but they took Jesus on trial before Annas first, before they took him to Caiaphas. 
Both Annas I and his son-in-law Caiaphas presided at the trial of Jesus. So it is no surprise to see the the son of Annas I following the same pattern of deadly opposition to Jesus and the Christians and the family and relatives of Jesus. Annas was the only family of priests that could boast having eight different members of their family uh, sitting on the high priesthood coming from their dynasty. As a huge, powerful dynasty. But I believe Ananias ben Nadibus uh, had more wealth than they did, but he didn't have as many uh, of his sons and, and associates uh, sitting on the high priesthood like Ananias did. Ananias, as well as five of his sons and one son-in-law and one grandson uh, set in the high priesthood. That's eight in all, eight of that family. That's a huge dynasty of high priest. And if you want more information about this and a list of all this so that you can see it uh, laid out for you in easy-to-grab to format, I recommend F.F. Bruce's book, uh, which is available from our website, www.preterist.org. Uh, the name of the book is Israel and the Nations. He has in the back of his book a lot of good charts about all the procurators, all the Caesars, all the high priest, and uh, a family tree for Herod, and just a bunch of other good charts and information in the back of his book. Highly recommend it. Israel and the Nations by F. F. Bruce. Uh, you want to also look at uh, Josephus' list in in the Antiquities, Book 18, uh, Section 2 and following, Chapter 2 and following, uh, and also in the Wars, uh, Book 4, Sections 318 through 325, uh, for a list of all these high priests. Now, Annas II uh, was a Sadducee. But this does not guarantee that his father, brothers, or any of his other relatives uh, were also Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees, I mean, I'm sorry, the, uh, the high priest tried to be impartial. It's kind of like the, uh, the justices on our Supreme Court. They don't take a political party, uh, although you can tell what party they're aligned with by the decisions that they render on the court, but they officially don't have a party identification, and that's the way the high priests were. They they didn't really make a big public deal about what party they were affiliated with, although most of them were, in, in all practical terms, uh, associated with the Sadducees, and that's the way Ananus was. He was clearly a Sadducee. He made no bones about it. Uh, uh, he associated with them, didn't hang around with the Pharisees at all. Uh, it was pretty clear that he was a Sadducee. But we don't know if his father and uh, relatives were Sadducees as well. And Vandercam talks about this in his book, uh, page 478. And Ananus II was killed less than six years later, in 68 AD, uh, during the revolt. And he was killed by the Idumeans when they rampaged. They were allowed to get into the city by the Zealots. And once they were in the city, they took action against all the moderates uh, who had tried to keep them out of the city. And that was namely Ananus II and his fellow uh, former high priest, Jesus, son of Damnius. Okay, um, so he was killed in 68 during the revolt by the Idumeans and the Zealots. And so he struck, uh, was, was struck dead uh, violently. He had a violent death. Uh, and, of course, we have to see that as vengeance uh, from Christ himself, who was present in judgment at that very time. Uh, Jesus was in his three-and-a-half-year presence, to judge his coming in judgment, 
pour out his wrath upon the Jews during that three and a half years of the revolt. And so uh, this is when Ananus II was killed. Josephus lamented the death of Ananus as a fatal blow to his hope for a quick and less destructive end to the conflict. In other words, Ananus II was a moderate, very closely allied with Rome, wanting to help the Romans keep the peace and stop the revolt. And when Ananus was killed, that signaled the end of the moderate movement and uh, only exacerbated and, and uh, plunged the revolt further down uh, on its path to destruction. Annas II was a moderate who wanted to restore peace with Rome and was the main leader of the moderates within the city during the revolt. It is extremely intriguing that Josephus has so much good to say about Annas II, especially since Josephus was in the city of Jerusalem at the time Annas II took this action against James and his companions. Now, here's how you put two and two together. This is historical reconstruction. Think about it. Here you've got Annas II, who hates the Christians with a passion. Josephus likes Annas II because Josephus is a moderate, just like Annas II is. And so Josephus was in Jerusalem at the time Annas II arrested James and some of his companions. Uh, and we're going to talk about the fact that shortly after this, then Josephus goes to Rome and to ostensibly uh, free some priests who had been held hostage there, uh, sent there by Felix back in the late 50s A.D., few years before. But I hope you're beginning to see how we can reconstruct what could have happened with Josephus when he went to Rome in relationship to the Christians, because he was still there when Rome was burned and the persecution of Nero uh, began shortly after. He was in Rome at that time and may have had something to do with the persecution. Uh, and we'll talk more about that as we get down into 64 AD. But it's interesting here to see the connection that Josephus has with this moderate Ananus II who hated Christians with a passion. Uh, Josephus went to Rome ostensibly to free some priests who had been held hostage there, but it's probable that he had several other missions to accomplish while he was there, besides just this one of freeing the priest, especially since we know he stayed in Rome for almost four years, down to almost the time that the war broke out. He stayed from the fall of 62 A.D. until the summer of 66 A.D. He was still in Rome at the time of the Great Fire in July of 64, and afterwards, while the Neronic persecution raged against the Christians in the summer and fall of 64 AD. It's extremely strange that Josephus does not mention either the fire or the persecution in either of his two large historical accounts, either in the wars or in the antiquities. No mention is made of the fire or the persecution. Strange. Even though he was there, he knew about it, witnessed it firsthand. He was an eyewitness to all that. Why does he not mention it? We know Josephus liked Ananus II, who hated Christians. But we do not know if there was any significant connections between him uh, or between them in this earlier period AD 62, before Josephus went to Rome. Certainly possible. And it seems that he may have 
had some uh, friendship and association with Ananias ben Nadibus, who also hated Christians with a passion. So it's all of these things uh, make it uh, not only possible, but highly uh, probable, I believe, that Josephus had some other missions to accomplish when he went to Rome, probably in reference to Apostle Paul specifically and to other Christians generally. Uh, he was out to get them and was on a mission there to uh, do whatever he could to wipe the Christians out. But there's no proof of that, and certainly Josephus doesn't give us any hints in his two accounts, uh, Antiquities and Wars, that he had any real serious bitterness and opposition and hatred toward the Christians. Uh, but that can be explained by the fact that in Rome at the time he was writing, he was closely associated with Agrippa II, who had some uh, favorable relationships with Christians there in the city of Rome. So uh, Josephus, probably out of deference to Agrippa, his good buddy, uh, decided not to write anything against the Christians. Uh, when he writes Antiquities later in the 90s AD, uh, he does mention that the tribe of Christians is not extinct even at that time, which is 25 years after 70 AD. He said there were still some Christians around at that time. Uh, they were not extinct completely. Uh, and it's hard to tell whether he wished that they had been or not. Uh, it's, it's hard to read into that. Uh, we'd probably need to go into and study, study that language real carefully, semantically, and uh, see if there's any overtones there in the words that he uses and the way he phrases it to see if there's any overtones of uh, bitterness against the Christians, but it doesn't seem to be on the, on the face of it. Okay, another event that's happening, of course, uh, at this time, and we mentioned it already, is the appointment to high priesthood by, by Agrippa of Ananus II. He was the son of Ananus I, of course, who we know as the, uh, the high priest at the time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. So here in AD 62, over 30 years later, we see another of this family of Ananus I becoming high priest. But because of his abuse of power in arresting James and putting him to death, this upset a lot of the, the fellow priests and aristocracy in Judea, and they complained to Agrippa, and they complained to... Uh, to uh, the Romans as well, and so Agrippa had no choice but to take Ananus out of the high priesthood and replace him with Jesus, son of Damnius. Uh, what a name, Damnius. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, that is a name. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I'd want to have that name, but of course it's, it's a Latin name, and it doesn't mean uh, damned. Uh, right. like it does in English. Uh, so it wouldn't have been a big deal. But um, Well, clearly it has fallen out of vogue. That, that sure is correct. So he de deposed Ananus II after Ananus had only been a high priest for three months in office. But because he had arrested James, put him to death, that really put him on the outs with the uh, aristocracy there in Jerusalem. And so they had Agrippa II replace him with Jesus, son of Damnius. Now, I have not been able to find much information about this new high priest, uh, and I'll try to do that this week. I'll try to look up in the Jewish sources and find out some more information about, about him. But he's a pretty quiet guy. He doesn't stir up too much trouble, and I think that's why Agrippa put him into power. He wanted to put in a moderate who wouldn't, cause any waves and upset things and uh, uh, get Agrippa into trouble for putting him into power. So Agrippa was pretty careful about who he put in so that he wouldn't have any egg on his face later. 
Well, I think that about wraps it up here. Uh, we'll begin there in, in April of 62 A.D. when we come back next time. Alrighty, my friend, Ed, uh, your email address and website if people need to contact you. Yeah, I would like uh, your input if any of this has raised questions for you or if you'd like to share with me some more information that you've gleaned in your historical studies that I'm not aware of. I certainly would love to have your input. Uh, email me at preterist1 at preterist.org, and you can also visit our website and order some of these books like F.F. Bruce's that we mentioned here. Uh, our website is www.preterist.org. All righty, my friend. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you. God bless. You are tuned to listener-supported AD70.net. We are Christian Radio from a slightly different point of view. We are putting sanity back into Christianity each and every day. And if you'd like to help us take this message of fulfillment to the uttermost parts of the earth, you can do so by going to our website, ad70.net, and you can click on the support tab located on the left-hand side of the page. As well, if you'd like to get a copy of this or any of our previous live broadcasts, you can do so by pointing your browser to thepodcast.org. God bless. God bless.